Okay, guys, welcome back to The Great Divide. This is segment two of episode one. So you heard the Steve Lillywhite interview. A lot of interesting things that he talked about there. And um, we'll get into those as we go into this album track by track. But let's let's talk about uh, the opening track, In a Big Country. I mean, that's obviously the place to start. And so I guess the best the best way to begin talking about In a Big Country, I think, is to show a little bit of the differences between the In a Big Country demo that Stuart recorded and the final version. And um, so let's play a little bit of the demo that... that uh, Stuart Adamson went away and recorded. You, you probably heard, uh, well, you heard on the last segment, Steve Lillywhite talking about how uh, the experience that Stuart had with him recording Fields of Fire sort of opened Stuart's mind to what he was capable of doing with Steve Lillywhite. And I think that apparently, according to Steve, inspired Stuart to go home, go back, and write the song that would break the band um, internationally in a big country. And it's often easy to forget that that song did not exist when Big Country was first signed, when they first started to work with Lily White. Um, you know, the first song that he did was Fields of Fire with them. So, you know, everybody always thinks of the introduction to Big Country is in a big country, but I think it's really interesting that that song was written kind of uh, toward the tail end of the band's early experience and the band assembling what would become the Crossing album. And thank God it was, because... That's the song that did it. That's the song that, that put them over the top. So let's listen to a little bit of the demo that made Stuart, or the, excuse me, the demo that made Steve Lillywhite actually cry. This is In a Big Country, the demo version, just a little bit of it by Big Country. <laughs> Okay, so that's a little bit of the demo of In a Big Country. And what I think is really interesting, without even hearing the final version, if you're, you know, if you've heard the song millions of times, which most of us have, I'm sure, what really stands out to me is the changes that I'm assuming Steve Lillywhite had a big hand in making that really took that great song to the next step, the next level. Um, one of those things you'll see is that in the demo version, Right after the first verse, it goes straight into the chorus. Now, here's what happened on the final version of that song. So you'll notice that what they did here on the final version of that song, the version from The Crossing, they rearranged that. So they they teased the chorus a little bit, which I think works beautifully. They didn't launch right into the chorus. 
they did the first verse, they had that little guitar interlude, and then they went to the next verse, and then they went to the chorus. And I think that worked great, and that, that was a great uh, a great example of the kind of uh, mind that Steve Lillywhite had. And again, I'm going to assume a lot of here, but I'm going to assume that Steve Lillywhite had a big hand in rearranging these songs, because that's what producers like him do. I'm sure the band had input too, but I'm, I'm sure, and I believe that Lillywhite had a lot to do with this. And that's just the first thing that I think Lily White did here that really made that a better song. He he held back on the chorus, did not bring it in right away. The first verse comes in, and then he adds that guitar part. And you also notice that that guitar part, that classic in a big country guitar part, is absent from the demo. So at this point, when the demo was, was recorded, that, that great lead part was not there. Now here's the final version, with the lead part added. So you can really see how the song changed from demo to the final uh, mastered version, and just great parts. I mean, that that lead part is really one of the most memorable parts of the song, and uh, whoever's idea it was to come up with that, it was just a brilliant stroke because it really takes the song to a new level. I mean, the um, the demo is great, but it really needs that extra push, I think, and that's one of the things that Steve Lillywhite's production brought to the song. Um, another thing that's interesting about the demo versus the final version is when we get to the breakdown in the song on the demo version, um, the so take that look out of here it doesn't fit you part Stewart is singing in a much much lower register which I've noticed is ha- has been the case on some of those early demos some of those early demos he sings a little bit lower than what he um, in- eventually will sing on the final versions of these songs let me just play a very little bit of that for you to show you what I mean so take that look out of So the final version, and again, I'm assuming it, it was Lily White, he had Stewart sing this part higher, and I think that really helps. I mean, it, it adds to the urgency of the song, it adds to the emotion of the song, and especially those lyrics. I mean, those lyrics are so fantastic. And um, he, here's the final version of that particular part, which I think is so much better. That video was played quite a bit on MTV uh, at the time, and, and Friday night videos for me, as I mentioned in the other segment. But um, I remember that people just in America, I don't know how that video was taken in other parts of the world, but 
in America, people just did not know what to make of that video. I mean, they thought it was so so silly and bizarre to see these guys running around on their four wheelers and uh, or their three wheelers. I can't remember which one it was, but um, you know, the guys in the band scuba diving and riding around on their bikes, and it was just such a bizarre video. But it but it was so endearing. I mean, it was it was really endearing, and it was so different. And I think it really let you know that this band. There's something really different about this band, not just from from a musical standpoint, but from an approach standpoint, from an image standpoint. Um, I remember having uh, the privilege to meet... I met Stuart a few times, actually. Got to know him a little bit um, back in the Raphael's days. Uh, got to know him just a little bit. Uh, but I met him for the first time in 1993 on the Buffalo Skinners tour. And they played a show in Washington, D.C. at a place called The Bayou. And it was an amazing show. When they came out, uh, I got to meet them. And I remember a lot of us were talking to Stuart at the time. And uh, he, we were talking about the fact that the show in America, Beavis and Butthead, uh, had just shown the In a Big Country video and um, on their show. And if you're not familiar with what that show was, it was a cartoon and they would mock uh, a variety of videos and they would play the videos and then comment over them as they were being played. But uh, but apparently Beavis and Butthead actually liked the In a Big Country video. They didn't say much bad about about it. And I remember someone telling Stuart that and he was like, oh yeah, I know. You know, they, they loved it. It was great. And Stuart was really thrilled that the In a Big Country video had been on uh, the Beavis and Butthead show. Um, speaking of uh, Stuart's thoughts about this song even more, um, I, I got to meet him along with a few other fans and just had an incredible experience with him at, in Nashville after a, a Raphael show. Actually, the, the the day after, Stuart took a few of us out to lunch, and it was a an amazing experience that I'll maybe chronicle in another podcast because it was like a magical couple of days for me personally. But um, we got to talk to him about all kinds of things over the course of that lunch, and I had the privilege of being able to tell him that my favorite lines that he ever wrote were in the song, The Great Divide. Um, and suddenly I find the truth, and all it is is size and youth. I love those lyrics. Probably my favorite that Stuart has ever written. Um, but anyway, I told him that, and I was thrilled to be able to tell him that to his face. And what he told me, I said, well, what are your favorite lyrics that you've ever written? And he said, my favorite lyrics that I've ever written were are... I'm not expecting to grow flowers in the desert, but I can live and breathe and see the sun in wintertime. And I thought it was great and interesting and amazing that, um, you know, the the first big song that Big Country was known for was still the one that Stuart was most proud of, and rightly so. And of course, you've got the, the Stay Alive uh, line at the end and throughout that became the band's calling card and became the band's rallying cry. And of course, you know, in hindsight with what happened with Stuart, that has been a very cruel irony um, that that was their rallying cry and something that Stuart would always sign autographs with and end his shows with. And you know, not to get too far off on a tangent here, but that that cruel irony there was something that really affected me for a long time after Stuart passed away. And I'm sure, you know, I'm far from alone in feeling that way. It just, it was really, really hard to listen to that song anymore and to, to think about the message of that song um, coupled with uh, or compared to the reality of what happened to Stuart. 
And it just seems so cruel and such a horrible thing, you know, that a band that stood for so much um, as far as overcoming your problems, surviving, staying alive, that the guy who wrote these things would pass the way that he did. But, you know, I've come to understand that that just because that happened, it doesn't at all take away from the value of the message. And I want to thank the band now, especially with Mike Peters. I mean, I think the current incarnation of the band has taken that song again and they've once again made it a rallying cry that feels true that feels vital that feels alive they've kind of they've kind of made the phrase stay alive stay alive they've resurrected it and i i think you know i i'm really appreciative of of that okay inwards inwards is man what a great song this is. Really one of my favorite songs on the album. Possibly my favorite song on the album. Um, and the interesting thing about Inwards for me is that the version on the album is actually not at all my favorite version of the song. Um, in fact, this is one song on the album that I think Lily White's production kind of diluted a little bit. Um and I know that might be blasphemy to say that, but uh, I mean, I mean, it still sounds incredible. Don't get me wrong, but when I heard this for the first time, it didn't quite grab me or hit me the way that it has since done over the years. And when I started to hear the song live, uh, that's when it really started to blow me away. And I'm especially thinking about the Seer live in New York uh, performance because that was the first time that I heard this song live, and there was there was a power to it, a power to that main riff that just kind of goes throughout the song that to me was lacking a little bit on the crossing that wasn't quite there uh in as much force as the crossing and one thing we've got on this remastered version is a lot of the inwards demos that have been released over the years and I'd heard some of these before but hearing them again just really reminds me of how much of a just a kick-ass song this is I mean it's just a it's a great song it's a uplifting song in a lot of ways it's got some it's got kind of a streak of melancholy to it as well but it's it's a song that just kicks you in a in a good way if that makes any sense but to me the demo versions the rawness of the demo versions are better than actually better than the crossing uh the polish of the crossing version i think this is one instance where you know that polish didn't lend itself as well to the song as 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 some of the demo versions uh did and one of the things that that I really prefer about a demo version, which I'm going to play a little bit of here, is the tempo. I think the tempo was a little bit faster on these demo versions, which I think really kind of helped get the the feel for the song and the kind of frenetic nature of the song, helped it come through a little bit more. So let's, let's play a little bit of one of the demos of Inwards, and I'm not sure which one this is, but this is from the Crossing Remaster. There are a couple of them on there. And um, here is Inwards, the demo.
One of the things about uh, Inwards that always interested me is that apparently this song was written uh, before Big Country started when Stewart was still in the skids. In fact, I, I found this section in the book A Certain Chemistry that came out, uh, I think, around 1985, 1986. Great big country book, by the way. Lots of great history and great comments. And uh, I'll, I'll probably be referring to it quite a bit, actually, in this podcast from a historical perspective. But there's a quote in here from Ian Grant, Big Country's manager. And he's talking about uh, Stewart uh, and his time in the skids. And the quote goes like this. Um, they, the skids, split up maybe three times, and I patched them up each time until one day when Stewart wouldn't come out of his room at King's Cross. I went round to see him, and he was in a real state. His grandmother had died, and he said, I finished with the skids. That produced the song Inwards on the first album. And I think that's interesting and is a real insight into Stewart. I mean, he always seemed like a guy who was really into family and maybe not even, maybe not the kind of guy who's cut out to just be on the road all the time, which is, uh, which is difficult if you're in a successful rock and roll band and you're constantly you know, have to keep up with the expectations. You've got all these these shows to do. You've got a, a full tour schedule. So I think that gives a little insight into into Stewart and, of course, that song. And it, it gives a little bit of weight to the lines, I wouldn't want to go out on a night like this when I find out that some of the past has been missed. And uh, it's just a great, great lyric. And when you think about what he was going through at the time, what he was thinking about at the time... It really makes that song so much more personal. There's one guitar part at the end of this song on the Crossing version that I really, really wish they would bring back into the performance of this song live. So if you're listening to this, Bruce, Jamie, any of you other guys, I would love it if you guys would would put this little part back into the song. I think they played it this way on the Seer version, which I'm going to talk about here in a second too, but... It's um well I get instead of me trying to explain what I'm talking about let me just play the part that I'm talking about this is the end of inwards on the crossing love that. I love that part so much. I just think that's a really, really beautiful, beautiful melodic part. And um, I wish they would bring that back when they perform the song. I think it would add to the song even more. But, uh, you know, if you're if you're a fan of um, a lot of the old videos of Big Country, which you probably are, I guess this was the second Big Country concert that I ever saw. I got it on a bootleg uh, VHS, and I found some guy who traded Big Country bootleg VHS tapes, and this was like the find of the century for me. It was the Seer Live in New York video. And, um, you know, I played that, and gosh, what a great, great concert that was. But one of the standout tracks is Inwards, and and listening to that and seeing that song perform live is what really gave me, um, I think, a newfound appreciation for that song and a, and a newfound love for that song. Because just the way they played it was so powerful and hard-edged and and just pummeling. It was a pummeling version of that track. But the interesting thing, of course, you probably know where I'm, what I'm getting at here, is the fight that happens during that song, during the performance of that song. 
it's a fight in the audience. And it's so funny because if you haven't seen it, uh, the band is playing, uh, they're, they're about finished the song, and they're going into that part, actually, that I was just talking about, that end part. And Stuart has a happy look on his face, and then suddenly he looks out into the crowd, and his look just changes 180 degrees immediately from happiness to just like confusion and then anger, and it's clear he's looking at something. And um, I, I kind of wish they would have would have cut to what was happening. I guess they didn't have a camera on the audience, but um, or maybe they just didn't want to glorify a fight, but it would have been interesting to see what was going on. But apparently there was some big fight happening. Stewart stops the song, and um, <laughs> it's, it's funny because it looks like Bruce is pissed off that he stops the song. Bruce kind of like hits his guitar and turns away and... It's uh, it cracks me up. But um, Stewart apparently sees a fight. He stops the fight. He he uh, kind of scolds the people who are involved in the fight. Tells them that uh, I think his line is um, for a group who is definitely not about violence. That was a little bit stupid, right? Yeah. So that's it. Shut. Anytime someone puts together an album, they're very conscious about the pacing of the album. And, you know, a hard edge song usually kicks off the thing, uh, an up song, and then maybe you have two, and then you go into a slower tempo, a ballad type of song. And that's exactly what Big Country did here. Um, great pacing for the album. And we've got the third track, one of their best songs of all time, and that is Chance. beautiful classic song that um it's just one of those songs that that's timeless it's it's gorgeous it uh it's got just chilling lyrics in a way um it's it's a sad tune the the, the chorus is obviously <laughs> you know a very down chorus once again lyrically and yet strangely enough it somehow becomes very uplifting when you sing that song live and that's become, of course, one of the staples of a big country experience is singing, singing that song live and, and doing the one, two, three, four chant um, in between the verse or in between singing the chorus of that song live. And it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, people get so uh, excited and emotionally, emotional, emotionally happy and up about a song that really is pretty sad and down and dark. But uh, that's the way a lot of Stewart songs were and big country songs. You know, they, they, uplifting music and yet when you really dissect the lyrics they're kind of uh they're often very dark lyrics but usually they had a a a spark in them like a sense of hope that things would get better i don't know if this song does but we can always imagine that it got better for the the girl in question here in this song but um you know great tune one of the things that i think i remember most about this song chance when i think about it and that that definitely lends a lighter side to the song is the video for this song um the video was uh was an interesting visual choice it was one of those it was one of the only videos that uh the had the band performing but Stuart was not playing his guitar he was just standing there singing 
And if you've seen the video, probably one of the things that really stands out to you, uh, as it did to me, <laughs> is is Stuart's pants. They're like uh, they look like they're five sizes too small. They're so tight, and it, it almost is a little comical. And I think Stuart in that video looks a little uncomfortable. Not not only because the pants are way too small and he's physically uncomfortable, but um, I think he looks a little uncomfortable without his guitar. He's kind of doing a funny dance where he's swaying back and forth, singing the song, and and um, he just doesn't look like he's in his element. And I think he should have had that guitar around his neck and been playing. And if they're going to do a performance video, you got to give Stuart a guitar. I, he, I don't think he's one of those guys who's going to who was going to be, uh, you know, a, a singer in front of a microphone and be that kind of a front man. He needed that guitar. But one of my fondest memories concerning this song is a big country show that I saw with my wife in Nashville in 1999. In fact, it was the very last uh, big country show in America. And um, up until, up so far anyway, I hope that changes soon. I really do because, man, I would love to see them here with Mike Peters. But this was kind of a, a little a little show prior to the release of Driving to Damascus, and Stuart was in Nashville at the time, living there, obviously, and the band came down, I think, to shoot uh, a video. I guess they were shooting the Fragile Thing video, and they decided they would play a show, and they played a show. I can't remember the name of the place now. Um, oh, yes, I can. It was called The Sutler in Nashville, and uh, they played this show there in a small club, and I remember they didn't have any of their equipment. Um, they had their guitars, but they didn't have a lot of the effects and effects pedals and everything. A lot of the equipment was borrowed. Um, in fact, I remember when they played Wonderland, they did that opening without the delay, and uh, they were laughing about that. And maybe a future podcast will be just about that show because there are all kinds of great things about it. Um, but um, one of the coolest things, without just so I don't go off on too much of a tangent here, was the performance of Chance. Now, and I'm going to play some of it for you because I was smart enough, luckily, to actually videotape this show. I I brought a friend's video camera who was a videographer, a wedding videographer at the time, and he had this gigantic camera, and it was gigantic because it shot on uh, beta tape, and it was actually very good quality tape, but at the time, I guess, you know, he didn't have the most, the latest and greatest, and... HD was not available at the time, but this was pretty good. So I brought this camera in there, and I felt kind of stupid. I mean, I'm standing there shooting the whole thing, and it's a small club, and I've got this giant camera. And at, at times I thought, you know, I wish I could just be watching this like everyone else and enjoying it. But now, after the fact, I'm so glad that I videotaped it because I got the entire show except for a segment of John Wayne's Dream that they played that uh, I had to switch the battery of the camera midway through the song, so I missed a little bit. But other than that, I got the whole show. A lot of it's up on YouTube um, now if you want to search for Big Country Live in Nashville. But the greatest uh, moment in that show, I think, was Chance. And the reason it was so great and so beautiful and so moving and uplifting is because when they went into the chorus part where the audience began to sing along, the Oh Lord, Where Did the Feeling Go? I've Never Felt So Low, and the one, two, three, four that accompanies it, the entire crowd being from Nashville, most of them, began to sing in harmony. And that is the first time and maybe the only time that I think that's ever happened. And the band was visibly shocked that this was happening, especially Stuart, as you'll hear in a moment. 
Um, but I mean, it was great. It was like two part harmony, and then it was three part harmony, and then it was it seemed like almost four part harmony. And at one point, you could hear Bruce in the background saying, "Like it sounds like the Beach Boys." And Stuart had just had the biggest smile on his face, and he was looking at Tony, and they were exchanging kind of amazed looks, and it was such a great sound. And instead of me trying to describe this to you uh, anymore, why don't I just play it? Okay, so that brings us to probably, I think between this and Inwards, this is my maybe my favorite song on the album. Um, I just love this song. It's called A Thousand Stars, and it's just an incredible opener for a concert. And when they started to do this song again, uh, most recently, on the most recent tours with Mike Peters, I was so pleased because to hear them launch into this song, the drums are just, the drums are perfect for the opening of a concert. I mean, you've got the great 
Mark Brzecki uh, rolling tom drum part that starts out just gets you excited immediately. And then that great guitar part kicks in, and then the rest of it kicks in, uh, one piece by one piece. It's just a brilliant opener. And I think my my uh, most vivid memory of this song, or the one that I enjoy the most, is I would say the uh, the live version of this at the Barrowlands show in 1983-84, New Year's Eve 1983. When I saw that for the first time and saw the band you know, coming out on stage, that drum part kicking off the song and the band appearing in their tartan headbands and and dancing around on stage i mean that just did it for me that was just an incredible moment you could just feel the electricity of that show and that night just pouring through the television and and into you and um that kind of burned that song into my brain forever as being one of my favorite big country songs i love me some a thousand stars and it's an interesting song i mean i I've heard that the song is about nuclear war and nuclear weapons. Damned if I can understand what why people come to that conclusion. I mean, I'm, I believe that's what it is. I think Stewart himself has even said that, but I, I don't understand the lyrics of the song. And yet, I do, if that makes sense. I mean, there's there was something about Stewart's writing back then, um, during those first three albums, especially the first two, um where he just wrote in this really abstract, poetic way. He wrote his lyrics like that, and it was it was beautiful. It was fantastic, and I, I, A Thousand Stars is a great example of those great lyrics. I mean, now we play our final hand, moving closer, understand, a card like never before, only the Black Queen scores, a card so high and so wild, we should burn it. I mean, those are awesome lyrics and yet I do not know what they mean. <laughs> I do not understand. I mean, I can kind of see the the uh how that applies to nuclear war perhaps. Um the Black Queen maybe being the actual act of nuclear war, a card so high and so wild we should burn it. Maybe that's a kind of a plea to dismantling nuclear weapons because you know, they are the card in this lyric and they are so ultimately powerful that and wild that they shouldn't be used at all. Um, you know that that very well could be uh, where that came from. So I'm, you know, I would never have figured that out. Is what I'm trying to say. If it hadn't been, if I hadn't read it somewhere, and yet the the lyric is still so freaking cool that uh, it's just one of those lyrics that I just love to love to yell and sing when I hear that song. It's just the Black Queen scores a card so high and so wild. We should burn it. What a great line. To start out a song, um, the chorus of a thousand stars. When they when the band sings, the luck of a thousand stars can't get me out of this. In the demo version that I'll play, you don't have any kind of, any music happening at that point. You've just got drums and kind of a staccato-y thing happening on the guitars. And uh, here's what I'm talking about. Now that's cool, and I like it. And if I if I hadn't heard anything different, I probably would still like it and love it. But here's what Lily White did to that portion of the song that I think is great.
one of the best songs on the album. One of the one of my favorite big country songs, and uh, really glad they brought this back into the set. Okay, and this brings us to the first the big country epic song. And you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a, a big country epic. We're talking about a song that goes through multiple musical changes, um, a, a long song, an epic song, a you know six minute plus tune uh, with with a lot of different uh, feels and di- changes in dynamics. That was the storm. Now I gotta admit, I did not like the storm that much when I first heard it. One thing I'll say about it is that this is another example of a song that I really like the approach of the demo, at least the sound of the demo, um, better than what what was actually recorded for The Crossing. I mean, the storm on the demo version, it's got a harder edge to it. It's got uh, distorted guitars with that opening uh, riff that's played. And it's it's there's a lot in it that that is not what appears on the crossing version, but uh, it's it just has more of an edge and I don't know it, it hits me a little bit harder. The crossing version was very ethereal. You've got acoustic guitars, you've got uh, Christine Beveridge doing the background vocals, which are really really great and beautiful. I know she joined the band recently to perform this song live. Uh, I have not heard that. I think it's on YouTube somewhere, but I would like to check that out. In fact, I probably will after I record this because I'd like to see what she sounds like these days. But um, that was a great addition to the song, there's no doubt. And the song sounds, on The Crossing, sounds much more ethereal and much more um, uh, airy, I guess you could say. It's And it, it, pro- it probably works better that way. I, I'm probably in the minority here for preferring the demo take. And I think really the, the feel of the song, lyrically and what it's what it's talking about, lends itself more to the way it was produced on the crossing but what can i say i love the guitar tones in the in the demo version let me play a little bit of that demo version and then we'll we'll get into another comparison of of that and the crossing version so here's the demo of the storm i came from the hills with a tear in my eyes So very cool. I mean, now the one thing that this demo did not have, as you could probably hear, is um, there there are a lot of parts in this song that it did not have. A lot of sections. It it just kind of it needed something else, and the version on the crossing gave it something else. It, uh, specifically, it gave it the uh, I know I can never return to the time of hope where I when I was born part. And that is just a really interesting part from from a musical perspective and a musician's perspective. That's a really strange part. I still haven't totally figured out what the chords are for that section. It's just, I don't know, it's really kind of a, a strange section of that song, and yet it works absolutely perfectly.
Storm is a great song. One of the things that that was introduced on the Storm uh, was the Ebo. That's where we first really heard the Ebo used by Big Country. And of course, you know that in the early days of performing this song, Stewart would would open it up with just an epic Ebo solo. And in case you've ever wondered what an Ebo was, I mean, Big Country did not invent the Ebo, and they did not pioneer its use necessarily, but they were one of the bands that really be, made the made the thing become very well known. Basically, what the Ebo is, if you don't, if you're not a musician and don't know what this thing is, it's a little device that you hold in your right hand, and it's got two grooves on it. Now, these two grooves basically fit over um, that. Well, the Ebo itself basically fits over three guitar strings, and the one in the middle is the one that is vibrated by the Ebo. It's some sort of magnetic uh, device that actually vibrates a string so that it gets infinite sustain. And you don't have to pick the string at all. You just put the you put the Ebo over the strings. And two, the two outside strings are muted by the grooves of the Ebo, and then the string in the middle is vibrated by the Ebo. And it gives the guitar kind of a violin type of sound. And especially when you add effects to it and stuff like delay and reverb and harmonics and, um, you know, harmonizers and everything else, which all of which Stuart and Bruce have done, it just gives it an amazing sound. One other thing about The Storm and about other songs on this album, I don't know if you're like me, but when I first bought this album and read through the lyrics, I noticed that some of the lyrics were different than what I was hearing Stewart singing on the album. Um, for example, in The Storm, you've got lines, the, the printed lyrics in the album were lines like, um, I chased them for miles, I had hate in my eyes, through forest and moor as the crows filled the skies. The storm broke upon us with fury and flame, both horses and masters bogged down in the rain. Do you remember reading that in the lyric sheet? Because I do, and thinking, what is this? Because Stuart is singing, both hunters and hunted bogged down in the rain. Or actually, he sang, both hunters and hunted washed out in the rain. There was also the case, similar case on the song Inwards. Um, there was a line in the, on the lyric sheet where he says, and the scouts in the stairwell will kiss again and talk about something, something, and freedom and pain or something. I can't remember exactly what they were, but uh, I just remember the scouts, the scouts in the stairwell will kiss again. And then listening to him sing it, it's, and the scouts in the stairwell will meet again. So the lyrics were different. I always wondered what was going on there, and it wasn't until, you know, relatively recently, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I started to hear some of these demos, and on some of these demos, you can hear him singing these lyrics that are actually printed in the uh, lyric sheet. So obviously what happened here is 
a lot of these lyrics must have been changed at short notice, and um, they must have sent, you know, to prepare the album, I guess they sent out the lyrics to have everything, you know, prepared and designed, and uh, they must have changed the lyrics after they sent the original ones out, because uh, they were different when the album was recorded, and I guess they just didn't feel like spending the money on changing the design at that point, or maybe there wasn't time to do it. But uh, anyway, I just think that's a little a little interesting mystery that that I used to wonder about back in those days. Uh, mystery solved now. Shot! Okay, now we go into side two of the album, if you remember the album or cassette version, and we get into Harvest Home, another great classic big country song. Definitely a song that was improved by Miles on the Crossing version, I think. Um, I've heard the demo of this, and the demo of this, is it on the Crossing remaster? Let me see. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is on the Crossing uh, remaster. That's where I've heard it. The first version of this is really very strange. I mean, the the the, cor- the chorus especially does not really work very well. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. What we get on the crossing is so much better than this and or than that demo. And this is a great example of incredible improvement of a song. Even the Chris Thomas version, which came out before the crossing, one of the one of the first things that, that Chris Thomas, the producer, worked with uh the band on was Harvest Home, and I believe it was their first single, which did not do so well. And you probably remember the video of that too, where the band is you know, another bizarre video in a sense where the band is is having a picnic and they go into some uh, mill or factory or something and start playing their instruments. And I, I love that video, though. I mean, to me, that, that gets the feel of big country. It's just like this outdoorsy type of thing, and it works. But uh, the one thing that Chris Thomas did a lot in the production of this song was he used a lot of keyboards, and I think the song, or he used keyboards for kind of the main... Uh, guitar riff, what what would have been the main guitar riff, he used a keyboard part. And I think it kind of gives the song a dated, more 80s feel when you listen to it now. But Lily White, the crossing version, is just all guitars, and it sounds great. One of my favorite things about the song live, especially, once again, going back to that Seer Live in New York video and that whole period, was when they played this song and they got to the end and the band just like went wild and they ran back and forth on stage and it just felt like a big Scottish hoedown on stage. Okay, now we get to Lost Patrol. This is another tune that I wasn't incredibly fond of at when I first heard it. It's really grown on me over the years. This is another song that really began to grow on me when I heard it done live. And actually, the um, the version on the Buffalo Skinners tour and the Without the Aid of a Safety Net uh, video, I think, just destroys. And it's it's just an amazing performance of this song, especially when they get to the end and Mark kicks in on the double kick. And they, they have that coda where you think it's over and they come back and keep playing it. 
this is an interesting song. I mean, the opening of this song on the demo version was really done uh, with more of a traditional picking uh, type of thing on the guitar, a traditional lead type of thing. But what Lily White did was he had them play it on the Ebo. So we brought the, we bring out the Ebo again for this song. very cool and it gives a, it gives kind of a ghostly apparition type of feel to the music which which lends itself well to the lyrics of this lost patrol but um but this song is so cool and the lyrics are so cool i mean uh what a what a great chorus to shout out when you're seeing the band live and the live version of this you know we save no souls we break no promises or we make no promises i can't remember which one it is but um that's just a cool line i mean it's just one of those cool lines that you like to shake your fist up into the sky and sing that and there's an instrument used on this version on the crossing that i i don't know what it is but i remember reading about it at one point i think maybe even bruce talked about it i'm trying to remember what it was but it's it's a really really cool sound and um i think it might have been some aboriginal instrument maybe i'm wrong there but it's it really really is cool and here's what i'm talking about from the crossing version of lost patrol So it's that almost, I don't know, it sounds almost like some sort of tribal type of horn or something that, uh, like a shell horn or something that they're playing there. But it it definitely works. It fits the mood of the song really, really well. And um, I guess when I, when I talk about, you know, preferring the demo version, I, I don't really prefer the demo version, but I, I do like the edge of the guitars a little bit more on the demo version. Um I don't know. Over the years, I've come to prefer like less processing on on music and on songs, and less effects. You know, more just like straight ahead in your face type of sound. And uh, that definitely was not the sound of the crossing. You know, it was very much um, a wet sound, as as someone might say. By, by wet, people mean that that's it, kind of like a musical technical term that people say whether a song is wet or dry or or a sound is wet or dry. If someone says it's a wet sound, that means it's got a lot of effects on it. If it's a dry sound, it doesn't have many effects at all or none. So that you're you're just hearing what comes out of the amplifiers. I kind of over the years have come to prefer a more dry sound, you know, less less processing, less effects. Um and that's kind of I guess why I've come to gravitate a little bit towards some of the dem- the sounds on those demos, but you know, it's not to take anything away from the sound of the crossing. I mean, actually, the the wet sound of the crossing gives it, I think, lifts it up. Um, like on the first version of, or the first section of this podcast, I talked about Stewart's music needing something more than what that first version of the band was able to give them. And I think, I think the music needed this kind of production that's on the crossing because it really makes it 
larger than life. It it gives it that majestic feel, that uh, anthemic feel. Shot! Now we come to close action, and uh, you know this this really rivals the number one spot for me too with a thousand stars. Sometimes this actually does exceed a thousand stars, and for me, close action is so great because not just musically, but again, these lyrics, I mean, once again, we've got lyrics that I do not understand what he's talking about half the time. And yet it connects with some sort of emotional chord in me. And it makes my eyes well up sometimes when you get to the chorus and the chorus, I'll carry you home with the gods in my eyes. I'll carry you home while the westerly sigh. I mean, what, what poetry? That's just amazing. Um, now, the stuff about the monkeys burning and the stoker's sweat and that kind of stuff, I love it. It sounds great. It sounds cool. It sounds unique. I don't really know what he's talking about. I don't really understand exactly what he's getting at there. I've heard him talk, you know, when I, when I hear the term close action, I think of a war term where someone is close to the front and, uh, you know, fighting is often referred to as action in war. So I'm thinking of someone being close to action, close to the f- the front line of a battle. That's how I always interpreted that song. And, you know, even if that's not what Stuart intended, I, I think the, that message of of someone being there for someone else, someone taking on someone else's burden, is what that song really refers to and what it reflects on. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what some of those lines mean, but as I say, as is the case with so many of Stuart's lyrics— it's almost like my subconscious knows exactly what he means. My emotional core knows exactly what he means because I feel, you know, the the emotions and, and the goosebumps, quite frankly, when I think of that song and when I hear that song quite often. Um, it's just one of my favorite big country songs. Okay, and then we get to Fields of Fire, and as you might remember from the first segment of this podcast, that's the song that really got me into big country. Still, you know, one of their best songs, one of their most, um, you know, recognizable songs, one of their one of their most melodic songs, and just a great hook in that song. So many great hooks. I mean, my gosh, the the lead part obviously is the big hook, the harmonizing lead part. One thing that Steve Lillywhite did on the production of this is that varied from the demo version is when Stewart plays the bum 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 on the demo, kind of like that bonanza theme type thing. He's playing it. Uh, it's not a chord that he's playing, but he's playing like a droning D string and um, another string at the same time, and it gives gives it kind of a thick feel to it 
one thing I noticed that Steve Lillywhite did is he had Stewart play that part as a strict one-string lead guitar part. Yeah, he had him he had him play that as kind of like a lead part in and of itself. Now personally, I prefer the way it was done on the demo again. No surprise, right? But um just because I like that thicker sound and that's the way that that the band plays it live too. And when it breaks down into the into the middle part of that section and it's just Stuart playing that part, I think it's it's great and it sounds awesome. It's, Steve Lillow, I did a lot of cool things on this song though. I mean, he so many guitar parts in it. Um so many beautiful harmonizing parts. It's an amazing song, an amazing video. Uh, you know, as I say, this song is what did it for me, even over um, in a big country. I mean, this is the song that really got me into big country to begin with. So it's always going to hold a special place in my heart. Okay, so now we come to the final song on the crossing, and what a song this is! Another epic, Pearl Man. Um. Man, what what an incredible song this is. Now, I gotta say again, this is a song that on first hearing on The Crossing, it, it kind of hit me the way the storm hit me, in that it didn't it didn't hit me as hard as some of the other tracks on this album. And this is also a song, another one of those songs that really didn't um completely win me over until I heard them do it live. And that was a long time ago. I got a hold of some tape of of the band on an early uh, Crossing tour playing this song. And holy crap, just hearing this song live and the drums and seeing it, you know, that that great opening guitar part, first of all, um, with a delay. There's a delay going on there and there's a harmonizing thing going on there. Beautiful guitar part, so magical, so so ethereal, so cool. Um, and there's kind of a hint of of uh, malice to it as well. There's kind of a hint of darkness to it, but not evil type of darkness or malice. But I don't know. It's 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 just a cool, mysterious, mystical song and a mystical sound. Uh, it's one of the greatest openings of a song ever, in my opinion. That guitar part, and then when the drums kick in, and Mark just is destroying the drum the drums with uh, those great rolling toms. makes you you know you would you would run through a wall for this song you know it's kind of how i feel and um you know once again we've got a song it was years before i understood what pearl man meant and it was years after that before i realized that it was taken from an hg wells uh poem or short story i can't remember which one but uh i know you know we found out it was about a witch doctor again lyrics that really you know, you asked me to explain what the lyrics of this song mean exactly. I could not tell you. Um, but it's one of those songs that, once again, even though I can't tell you exactly what the lyrics mean, they just work on some level that I, I can't quite put my finger on. They work on some unconscious, uh, emotional level. And, you know, what can I say? That was Stuart at his best. And 
Stewart was a great poet when he wanted to be, and he really seemed to want to be on those first few albums. Um, I mean, he's always been a great lyricist. Up to the end, he was a great lyricist, but his lyrics got a little bit more uh, standard, I think, is a way to put it, as, as time went on. He didn't write like this anymore as, as the band grew and as, as they developed over the years, and I really missed that. I really missed that mystical side of his lyric writing, and nowhere is that more evident and more prevalent than in a song like Pearl Man. And musically, this song is a monster. It's just a monster song. Goes through so many changes, takes you through so many emotions. When it gets to the breakdown section where you've got the one guitar playing, and then uh, it plays that great little run, and then the drums kick in, and you get the ha. What an adrenaline rush that is, especially live, because I think, again, live it comes off so much stronger in a lot of ways than it does on the album version. I think they never did this song better than on that first tour. Although I will say that hearing the band do it now, I was really, really pleasantly surprised at how good it sounded. It it was really moving to me when Mike Peters introduced this song on a recent big country tour, and he did it by reading an excerpt of the short story that it was based upon or that it was influenced by Pollock and the Pearl Man. And and just beautiful words here from Mike Peters and really makes the song give you even more of a hair standing on edge type of feel after this introduction. One song in the crossing in particular, I was uh, really interested to kind of find out where it came from and uh, what the inspiration was. And and Bruce told me that it was from a book that both him and uh, Stuart read when they were young. And it was uh, a book of uh, short stories, and one of them was called Pollock and the Poroman. And it was, uh, it was written by H.G. Wells himself, and it was published in May 1895. And I, uh, I started to read the book, and I came across this, this passage, and I thought, uh, in its words, I could uh, actually almost feel like I could almost touch to it again. So I wanted to share it with you tonight. Like I've done on most of the nights on this tour, this is a, a reading from Pollock and the Poromen. Belief in Poro malignity and Poro magic had been in the air. His sense of Poro had been vast, pervading, threatening, dreadful. Now, manifestly, the domain of Poro was only a little place, a little black band between the sea and the blue cloudy uplands. Goodbye, Poro, shouted Pollock. Goodbye, certainly not. Au revoir. This is for Stuart Hamilton. The Poro Man! So there you have it. That is The Crossing, uh, track by track, and that is the end of this very first Big Country podcast, of the, the very first episode of The Great Divide. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I really would love to know what you think of this. If this if this is something you'd like to see more of and would like to see grow and develop, I would love to do that. It's a lot of fun for me. It's uh, it's just enjoyable to sit here and talk about big country. Again, I would like to, to get other people involved in future episodes. Um, but please, by all means, if you have some feedback you want to give me, good or bad, I've got a thick skin. I can take it if you got any complaints. 
Um, but of course, I would prefer nothing but gushing praise for how, this, how much you enjoy this this uh, show. So either way, if you want to get in touch with me, please email me at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. And uh, hopefully, you know, this will grow. And I'm planning to develop a website for this at some point here in the future, too. And put these things up on iTunes as well. So you can follow this podcast on iTunes and download it that way. Um, Hopefully, they'll be coming out generally on a monthly, every couple months type of basis. I've already got the idea for the next one. It's going to be my top ten list of big country B-sides. So uh, that should be interesting and fun. And uh, in the meantime, great that Big Country is back out there. Uh, Continue to enjoy them as I will. And my thanks to the band especially for, for all they've done over the years, for all the music that they've recorded over the years, and for the, what they've meant to me in my life and what I know they've meant to you in your life. But before we go here, I want to leave you with uh, one last interview. This is an interview with Big Country done uh, in America in 1983 as The Crossing was becoming a huge success and I think this is a great way to cap off the show with Big Country talking about the album that really you know, made them a superstar band and uh, put them on the track for an amazing career that continues today. So here's Big Country great interview, kind of a comical interview in places um, from 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 the interviewer American interviewers, kind of bizarre but uh, I, I enjoy this interview a lot, and um, here it is for your listening pleasure. So enjoy, and we will see you next time on The Great Divide. Bye. In America, the one that's really running away with it is in a big country. Is this a special number to you? It's special to me because it broke us really big in Britain, which was good. And it's a particularly enjoyable one to play live because we get a very good reaction live from that one because it's up-tempo. Do you yourself have any theory as to why Big Country are doing so well in America? Yeah, I do tend to write songs mainly about the environment that I come from anyway, which is, is like a small working-class town in, in Scotland, really. And uh, I think the majority of people that buy records do live in towns of that, that ilk, you know? I mean, not every place is like London or New York. Well, in a big country, seems to combine a personal message with almost a, an anthemic feel of a place and an attitude to life. Yeah, it does. Uh, I'll agree with that. I mean, I think it's like a very Scottish trait for people to be optimistic in the face of abject disaster, as it were. And um, I was just trying to put that that feeling into music. I mean, I know that there have been great songs that have affected me, I mean, quite radically in my past. If someone could come up to me and say, well, this song changed the way I felt, we think, I mean, or say, well, I felt really depressed with this and that, and then it gave me a bit of hope, and that, that for me would be like the ultimate success, really. It's suggested in some of the critiques I've read in the States that Big Country are bringing a sound of Scotland to the States in the same way that Dexys may have brought a bit of the Celtic sound. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a, a fair remark? I think it is in a way, um, unconsciously, I think. <laughs> The Harvest Home, uh, at the end of the song, the last couple of lines are rather alarming, if you remember the last couple of lines there. Actually, there's two ways of looking at this. There's that, actually the lines I sing and the lines that are written down as the lyrics. Because the lines that are written down as the lyrics, I never actually got around to saying because I thought it was a bit corny, actually, you know, a bit cheesy. That's the, our home's on fire, my wife has fled lines, yeah? Is that the ones you're talking about? And um, I just ended up just doing it in a Harvest Home instead. That's actually a mistake on, on the lyric sheet. That's not like a problem of accent.
You had a rave review in Variety, which I loved. I don't know if you read it, but uh, it said the gig was great. The only problem was was that you said Shaw too much. <laughs> I can't help it if I get excited on stage, you know. What does that word mean, anyway? It's not any, it's just an, an exclamation of, of passion, really. I must ask, the Fields of Fire sounds to me uh, like inspired by the guns of Navarone. Hey, hundreds of people have said that. I've never heard it. And neither Stuart. Yeah, I, actually... I've never ever heard the guns in Avalon. Can you tell me how they sound? Well, here goes. Do 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 I don't know, from Berlin to Boston, it's just like that, which is, is very gratifying as well. Well, you've certainly had a good start, and with a hit album the first time out for this group, you're, you're poised to do whatever you want, but have you figured out what that is? Um, well, after a six-week tour of uh, America, we're just going to just like have a rest for a couple of months, and then start work on a new album, start writing some new songs. So just keep writing some new material after this, I think. To show people that there can be more in music than just a group that's concerned with how many sales that they achieve in a, in a set period of time. I think, for me, music's always been an important thing, something that's been very close to me and that's something that, that has meant a lot to me. And if I can give that feeling to other people, then, then I've done something worthwhile. I just want to see us progress and peak. I'd like to see the band peak and, and be captured on tape and have another good album. I don't know how many albums that will be, whether we've done it or whether that's in the future, but it's the uncertainty that I like. Thank you very much. Good luck to you.